Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Danica. And I'm Shannon. Today's case is a serial killer, and it's unique in the fact that I was able to deep dive into his account from one of the killer's best friends through a book he wrote. A link to the information about the book will be in the show notes, along with all the other links like every other week. Anywho, let's jump right in. Today we're going to talk about Charles Howard Schmid Jr., but he's referred to by his friends as Schmidty, and I've decided we're friends with him. Not really, but we're going to refer to him that way anyway. Schmidty was born on July 8th of 1942 to an unwed mother, which, you know, we've covered this time and time again. It's very taboo at the time. So his mother put him up for adoption, and at just two days old, Schmidty was adopted by Charles and Catherine Schmidt. The Schmidt family lived in Tucson, Arizona, and that's where Charles and Catherine owned a nursing home that was doing very well. In school, Schmidty was said to be fairly intelligent, courteous, and just kind of a curious kid. Despite that, though, he didn't really excel in his grades, and he was often a bit of a risk taker and kind of a trickster. Schmidty always seemed to be fairly close with his mother, Catherine, but he seemed to get into arguments quite a bit with his father, Charles Sr. Schmidty would later say he got spanked with his father's belt, sometimes for no reason at all. And while it sounds a bit harsh to us now, that seems kind of typical for a dad in the late 40s to early 50s. So at about eight years old, Schmidty became friends with Paul Gein, and they would hang out often, taking their BB guns. They would go shoot small game animals like birds or squirrels or rabbits. In high school, up until his senior year, Schmidty was actually quite the athlete for the school's gymnastic team. He even took his school to the state championship one year. However, he did quit the team his senior year. Okay, for one, I've never even heard of a high school having a gymnastics team, but also, why did he quit the team? So I tried to find the reason, but no sources I found said why he might have quit. However, that same year, just before graduation time, Schmidty got suspended from school. He had stolen some tools from the school's machine shop. And when he was suspended... Um, he just didn't come back after that and didn't graduate from what I could find. In 1960, at just about 18 years old, is when Schmitty finds out he's adopted. So up until then, he thinks that Catherine and Charles are his birth parents. Um, he doesn't really take it too well. And if that doesn't already, you know, kind of suck to find out at 18, he decides to track down his biological mother and he does finally find her, and she pretty much tells him, like, I didn't want you the first time. I don't want anything to do with you. You know, don't contact me again. That 
projection has to be rough. But also, I'm really impressed that he found her back in the day without computer, social media, all of that. I know. Um, but yeah, I think I would think that the rejection had to be a not so great experience for him. But he continues on. Despite dropping out of school and not really having a job, Schmitty seems to be getting along just fine. He lives in his own small house. From what I understand, it's like a guest cottage like situation on his parents' property. And on top of that, they gave him a nice convertible car and a $300 a month allowance. Just free money. He's not going to work for it. And we need to keep in mind, this is the 40s, which means $300 a month then would be over $6,000 a month today. That is a nice chunk of change to give just for living. I'd like to have that kind of arrangement. Right? Anyway, this little house was a major party spot in Tucson, especially for the teenagers who adored and idolized Schmitty. A quote from Richard Brun's book summed up logically why teenagers were, were so drawn to Schmitty in a town. There really had nothing for teenagers to do. He said, quote, once he had all the things a typical teenager lives for and how dear money, a new convertible car, clothes, looks, dates, at the snap of his finger, and even a rock and roll band. I can get the appeal for poor teenagers. That talks about his looks. Was he attractive? Okay. In my opinion, no. We'll post a picture on Instagram for you guys to decide, but just for you to have a mental image right now, I can, I'm going to give you kind of a description of what he looked like. So he's a little bit on the shorter side at five foot four. However, he's very much not confident with his height. To help with this, he would never take off his boots because on the inside, he would pad them with like crushed tin cans and rags to add about a three inches to his height. So oh gosh, talk about sore feet. Yeah. And he had a funny walk, but people thought people didn't know that's what it was from. So while originally he's five four. He has a few extra inches. His natural hair was like an auburn color, but he dyed it jet black. He used a lot of makeup as well to change his appearance. He used pancake makeup on his face, white makeup on his lips, and he drew a beauty mark on his left cheek. And you could see in the pictures, like over time, this beauty mark gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> so many say that he idolized Elvis, and so he, like, molded his looks to emulate his idol. So he's got this whole mirage, right, of being like Elvis. He's got the money. He's a hit, especially with teenage girls, but with the teenage crowd in general. Because of this, he's dubbed the later on as the Pied Piper of Tucson. So at age 21, Schmitty got into a relationship with 18-year-old Mary French. He met Mary at his parents' nursing home where she worked. And for a while, the two actually lied to Schmitty's parents, saying that they had gotten married so that she could stay at his home and sleep in his bed. When his parents found out the truth about this ruse, they kicked her out. In the meantime, Schmitty had convinced Mary to have her paychecks deposited to his account. And on May 31st of 1964, Schmitty tells his friend John Sanders and his girlfriend Mary French that he wants to kill Aileen Rowe that very night. Who is Aileen and what does he want to kill her for? So Aileen is a 15-year-old girl that Schmitty had taken an interest in. She was really pretty and smart 
and had zero interest in this Elvis wannabe, which I'm guessing he did not take too kindly to. Aileen was friends with Mary French, so Schmitty uses her to help him get to Aileen. He tells Mary to go ask Aileen to double date with him, and John Saunders would be Aileen's date. To Schmitty's surprise, Aileen told Mary she could not go out that night because she had to be up early the next day for an exam. This just infuriated Schmitty. He hounded Mary to go and change Aileen's mind. When that didn't work, Mary um, went to Aileen in person and finally, after a bunch of begging, got her to agree. Aileen told Mary that the double date would have to happen after her mom left for work, though. So John and Schmitty loaded a shovel in the trunk of the car. Schmitty got in the driver's seat, Mary in the passenger seat, and John in the back. And the trio drive around for a little bit until Aileen's mother had left for work. So Mary got out of the car and she knocked on Aileen's window. Aileen came out in a swimsuit with a yellow checkered dress. She had her curlers in. She was barefoot. She was carrying her shoes and climbed in the back seat with John. The group drove out to the desert to Schmitty's favorite drinking and making out spot. Tonight, though, they all got out and they walked into the desert until they got to a wash where they sat and talked. After a bit, Schmitty asked Mary to go back to the car and grab a radio. Quick question. I'm not really familiar with the desert. What exactly is a wash in a desert? Okay, so it's kind of hard to explain, but it's kind of like a shallow creek type thing. It's basically a shallow bit of water in the desert. Anyway, Mary stayed in the car while John struggled to keep Aileen in place. Schmitty told John to put his hand over Aileen's mouth to keep her quiet, and then the two proceeded to tie her hands behind her back with a guitar cord. John was instructed to take Aileen's bathing suit off, but he kind of found it difficult with her hands tied around her back. Schmitty untied her hands, told her to take off her dress, and lay on it. Aileen did as she was instructed, but was sobbing, of course. Schmitty told John to go away, and when Schmitty called John back, Aileen was putting her swimsuit back on. I was not able to find for absolute certain if she was sexually assaulted, but given all of the context clues, it seems like it's very possible she was. As Aileen got up to start walking, Schmitty grabbed a large rock and handed it to John. John couldn't do it, though, and walked back to the car where Mary was. When John came back to Schmitty a few minutes later, Aileen had been bludgeoned to death with the rock. Schmitty was covered in blood as well. The two guys walked back to the car where Schmitty excitedly told Mary that they killed her. They got the shovel from the car and went back to Aileen. Three of them dug a shallow grave in the desert and buried Aileen's body, Schmitty's bloody shirt, and the shovel. Before everyone went home, they conducted a story for their alibi. They decided, if the police, or anyone for that matter, asked, that they would say that Aileen had agreed to the double date, but when they drove to her home to pick her up, that she wasn't home. This was a really schmitty thing to do to her. <laughs> Did the police ever talk to them? Oh, God. Yes, actually. <laughs> All three were talked to by the police, but stuck to their story. We'll talk more about that in a second, though. Let's talk about when Aileen was reported missing. 
The morning after the murder, Norma Rowe found her daughter's bed empty. I'm guessing Norma is Aileen's mom. That's right. It was confusing to Norma because Aileen was not only not in her bed, but her purse was still home. So Norma called around to Aileen's friends, and when that did not produce her any idea of where her daughter was, she called the police. After a few months with no leads, the police kind of just chalked it up to a runaway teen. Norma was not having it, though. She contacted the attorneys general, the FBI, reporters. So Norma. Yeah. So a little while later, John Saunders has gone on to join the Navy, and Schmitty started to spend more time with his friend Richie Bruns. Schmitty even tells Richie about the murder of Aileen. However, Richie really doesn't think much of it because Schmitty was known for his grandiose stories. Around Schmitty's 22nd birthday, he sees a 16-year-old girl at the local pool named Gretchen Fritz. The first day that he saw her at the pool, he followed her home. He saw that she lived in a huge house, and he found out that her father was a heart surgeon. Gretchen was a bit of the black sheep in her family. One of her teachers even later said she was a liar, a headmaster at a private school. She attended highly recommended psychiatric care before suspending her, and one friend described her as insanely jealous. She sounds like a fun person to hang out with. Yeah. So Schmitty concocts a ruse to get to talk to Gretchen. He loads up a whole bunch of pots and pans and goes to her house pretending to be a door-to-door salesman. Though he pretty quickly tells her it was all a ruse to meet her when she comes to the door and they get to talking. This created some mixed emotions in Gretchen because when he first told her, she laughed. And then she cried, and then she invited him in for a drink. So it sound like a match made in heaven. Yeah. The two started da- dating, despite the fact that Schmidt had given cheap engagement rings to two other girls, one of which was Mary French, because probably because she helped him murder somebody, and the other was Darlene Kirk. Though Darlene gave her ba- ring back to Schmidt and began dating Richie, his friend, for a while. We'll talk a little bit more about the romance between Darlene and Richie, but for now, let's talk about Schmidt and Gretchen's romance. They started to see each other on a pretty regular basis, and then when they had sex for the first time, Gretchen assumed Schmidt would leave since he got what he was after. However, he shocked her by telling her he loved her, and after that, the two were officially a couple. The relationship is rocky from the start, and you heard how they met, so I don't think you're surprised. Schmitty tells Gretchen about killing Aileen, going as far as taking her to the grave. And Gretchen, being of sound mind and body, shrugs it off and says she still loves him. Well, I mean, that's kind of seems like a red flag to me, but I don't know if she has the same kind of idea of red flags as I do. I would say probably not. But, you know, this doesn't obviously deter, deter Gretchen at all. Okay. So this is the beginning of 1965. And as the year goes on, there are numerous incidents of Schmitty physically abusing Gretchen. At one point, she made him so mad that he wrote a letter to the health department claiming that Gretchen had an STD. (laughs) And then wrote letters to her parents who did not approve of Schmitty to let them know that she had been sneaking out to see him. Gretchen was no peach either, though. She was extremely possessive and jealous when it came to Schmitty. He would get very annoyed when the phone at his home rang because he knew it was Gretchen, asking what he was doing, who he was with, so on and so forth. 
She even supposedly stole his diary, which recounted him killing a man in the East at some point. I say supposedly because the diary was never found and it was never confirmed if that murder ever actually occurred. By the time of fall of 1965, Schmidt is fed up with Gretchen and starts telling his friends that he's going to kill her. Gretchen, about the same time, found out about Schmidt's quote, engagements, and is furious. Schmidt gets some reprieve from Gretchen's fury when she goes on a family vacation to Florida. While she's away, Schmidt does play. He throws many raging parties while she's away. But then she comes back, and her and Mary French both show up at Schmidt's, claiming to be pregnant and each demanding that Schmidt marry them. This leads to a big fight between Gretchen and him when he turns her down and she eventually storms off. On August 16th of 1965, Gretchen decides to take her 13-year-old sister, Wendy, to a drive-in movie to watch Tickle Me because it starred Elvis Presley. The two never made it back home. I bet I can guess who's behind that disappearance. Well, you're probably right, but of course nobody else knew that for sure. Gretchen and Wendy's father, who, if you remember, is a well-renowned heart surgeon, hires a private investigator named William Halig to look into his daughter's, both his daughter's disappearance. He started investigating and was able to find Gretchen's red and white Pontiac Le Mans when it was abandoned behind a hotel. So Gretchen's purse is there in the car with the ticket stubs, some cash, car keys, and an odd note that they found was an extra 60 miles on her speedometer. So Schmidt admitted to his friend Richie that he'd killed Gretchen and Wendy. Schmidt told Richie that he killed the girls at his home by strangling them, though this time he decided against burial and decided to dump both girls in what he called a, quote, obvious spot because he claimed he just didn't care anymore. It wouldn't be long before Richie was invited to Schmidt's for a, an appointment. At this time, Richie had become very paranoid that Schmidt's next target would be Darlene. So we talked a little bit about Darlene earlier. She had been in this weird engagement with Schmidt. She called it off and then started dating Richie. So he, she's essentially rejected her. So I can understand why Richie might have this paranoia. But due to this paranoia, he basically camped out on Darlene Street day and night to keep an eye on her. Of course, he couldn't tell anyone that the reason he was doing this was to protect her from his friend who's killed some people. So the cops got called on him a lot um, by Darlene's parents, by neighbors of Darlene's. Neighborhood crime watch, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. People are like, why is he always out here? It's weird. One night, Richie gets a call from Schmidt about coming over that evening for a party. Richie's apprehensive but agrees to go because if he's at the party with Schmidt, then Darlene's still safe and he can keep an eye on Schmidt. At this party, the Tucson Mafia shows up and picks up Schmidt and Richie. Both of the boys keep quiet about the truth. Schmidt tells the mafia that he believes Gretchen went to San Diego as she met a guy there when she was on vacation. The mafia is not sold. 
but does tell Schmitty to stay on standby as they may pick him up to go to San Diego to look for the girls. Once they get back to the party, Schmitty tells Richie that he needs to come with him to bury the girls' bodies. You said it was an obvious spot before. Uh, why have they not been found yet? Well, apparently, it just meant that it would be obvious to Richie because he dumped the girls at the drinking spot that the guys formerly frequented. The two get shovels and bury a shallow grave for, Rich- for Gretchen. For some reason, that I still can't figure out why, they don't bury Wendy's body. So they just leave hers there. Soon, Richie has to go to court for his multiple arrests for essentially stalking Darlene. The judge orders Richie to move to his grandmother's in Ohio for three months. And while gone in Ohio, Schmitty goes on a blind date with 15-year-old Diane Lynch. Wait, how old is he again? So Schmitty was 23 when he went on this date, and in a month's time, the two were married. What Schmitty didn't know during his newlywedded bliss was back in Ohio, Richie had had a bit too much to drink, and he tells his grandmother all about Schmitty's murders. His grandmother urges him to go to the police, which he does. So the Tucson police come out, pick up Richie, and take him out to the desert for him to show them where Gretchen and Wendy's bodies are. On November 10th of 1965, Schmitty was arrested, and in the following few days, Mary French and John Saunders were also arrested. Both of them quickly told the police the truth about their involvement. Mary French received four to five years in prison, while John Saunders received life. Schmitty, of course, enters a plea of not guilty, so we're heading to trials. So let's talk about those for a bit. The first day was February 15th of 1966 for the trial of Gretchen's murder. There was quite a bit of contradictory testimony from different witnesses. However, Richie's testimony, Mary's French's testimony, and Charles Schmidt Sr., Schmidt's father's testimony, seemed to carry the most weight. Richie told everything he knew. Mary French also told what she knew that the defense tried to object since she was testifying about Aileen's murder, but it was overruled. As for Schmitty's father, he refused to back his son up about the alibi that he was with his parents that night. However, his mother does contradict the father in her testimony. On August 16, 1966, both sides rested. The jury left for deliberation, and when they came back, they had a verdict of guilty, and following that was the death penalty. That was just for Gretchen and Lindy's murders, right? Right. So there's a whole second trial. During this one, Schmitty ended up changing his plea to guilty for second-degree murder and get getting 50 years to life in prison. He wrote a letter to the judge saying he was coerced by his counsel to take that plea deal. So they're starting to look into that. But June 12th, he changed his mind again and withdrew his plea and decided to keep his guilty plea or to withdraw his appeal and keep his plea. So a few weeks later, on June 23rd of 1967, Schmitty tells the police that he will take them to Aileen's body and lead them to the grave. During all that, the second trial, and then the plea change, Schmitty's wife, Diane, divorces him. Schmitty heads off to prison, but his story is far from over. 
Shmini decides he isn't a real big fan of prison. No, mom, I can't imagine mom. Well, he decides to try out the Trojan horse, horse method to escape. So he hides out in a hollowed exercise horse. However, that failed when he was discovered. He wasn't deterred, though. He hatched a new idea and tried to use a fake suicide attempt to escape. But that plan failed as well. In 1971, Schmidt came upon a bit of luck because Arizona abolished the death penalty, commuting his sentence to 50 years in prison. For some unknown reason, Schmidt changed his name to David Paul David Ashley in 1974. However, we will refer to him as Schmidt to make it less confusing. So he seemed to have better escape plans with his new name because he makes another jailbreak attempt, and this time he succeeds. However, it was quite a brief stint outside the prison walls. He was spotted wearing a hideous yellow wig as a disguise as he walked near the train tracks. A little high and mighty from his short, successful prison escape, it was reported that Schmidt started treating other prisoners as if he was their superior, which, for some odd reason, they weren't really taking a liking to. On March 20th of 1975, two prisoners attacked Schmidt, stabbing him over 20 times, mostly in his face and chest. It was so bad that he even ended up losing one of his eyes. After 10 days of extensive care in the hospital, Schmidt succumbed to his wounds on March 30th of 1975 at only 32 years old. His parents requested he be buried at the prison cemetery, so he was. That is the story of Charles Howard Schmidt Jr. A little bit crazy. Have you ever heard of him before? No, I haven't. Neither. That's why I thought it was so interesting. There's a lot of information for him to not be very much talked about. Very well known. Yeah. Wow. I was a little sad when his sentence was commuted, but then I was like, no, he ended up with a death penalty anyway, just prison justice instead. I got to look him up, though, and see what he looks like. All the women were after him. I'll show you a picture. Like we said before, the pictures will be posted on our Facebook, our Instagram, um, and our Twitter. And maybe I'll put one on TikTok just for funsies. So you guys tell us what you think. Was he good looking? Because. I mean, all the ladies are fighting over him. He's got to be good looking. Yeah. Tell us what you think. Would Would you have been all about Charles Schmidt? We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.